Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 as we begin tonight looking at the faith that stands the test of fire. If you don't have an outline, there's some still down on my right and your left, and there's some in the back. First Peter chapter 1, Peter speaks of God testing our faith to show the quality of that faith. And he talks about this in First Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that is, various hardships, various difficulties, various adversities, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter says that God uses various circumstances in our lives to test our faith. He uses the example of gold ore, which was placed in the fire and it was melted. As the gold ore was melted, the impurities would rise to the top and they would be skimmed off. And finally, when you could see your reflection in the gold, you had pure gold. Or you could take a sample of gold and you could test the quality of it by, again, putting it to the test of fire, melting that piece of gold, and by melting it, seeing if any impurities floated to the top. If so, you could tell that the gold was not as pure as you had expected, and hence it would fail the test. But if no impurities came to the top, then the gold was as pure as you thought, and it had passed the test, and its quality was proved. Now this is the example Peter uses to talk about what God does with our faith. He places us in the fiery furnace at times through various circumstances and hardships that he brings in our life for the purpose of showing the quality of our faith, testing our faith. Will we continue to trust him even in our hardship? Will we be submissive to his will even in the difficulty? A true saving faith will pass the test when the fire comes. A true saving faith generated by the Holy Spirit will show its quality in those times of adversity. Take Abraham when God placed before him the test of sacrificing his only son Isaac. His faith rose to the occasion and gave evidence that it was indeed a genuine saving faith because he was willing even to do that. Job is another example. As his faith was tested many times, the quality of his faith was revealed through that testing. Now the writer of Hebrews talks about the faith that quenches the fire. In Daniel chapter 3, we will see the faith that quenches the power of fire and literally stood the test of fire, showing its genuine quality. 
In Daniel 3, we see three young Hebrew boys. They are not too young at this time of the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, grown men now. And we see God engineering circumstances and events in their life for the purpose of putting them literally in the fiery furnace to test the quality of their faith and by showing the quality of their faith, serving as an example to men and women of history from then up until our day. So turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, and we will look at the faith that stands the test of fire. Now I have in your outline, as you might notice, I picked up on Peter's idea of gold and testing of metals, and I have used various metals to give the various points in the outline. Uh, There's nothing inspired about that, obviously, but uh, I hope it might help you to follow along. The first, the golden image. The golden image. The situation in Daniel chapter 3, if you're not familiar with it, is that King Nebuchadnezzar builds, first of all, a statue that has great size. Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubics. That's about 90 feet. A cubic is around 18 inches. A cubic was the distance from the tip of a man's finger to his elbow, which averages out about 18 inches. And 60 of those comes out to 90 feet. Its width was 6 cubics, which is about 9 feet. And so it was probably made of wood and overlaid with gold. Uh, Not pure gold, not the size of this statue. Now look also at its great significance in verse 5. He declared that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Now, this image had great significance. This image was to become the center of a new religion. The new religion was to be symbolic that King Nebuchadnezzar had absolute rule over the people's hearts and their lives. This new religion was to be a blending of the state and religion. And Nebuchadnezzar was to be the head of both. Uh, This statue would unify his government under his absolute rule. As we have said, if any ruler is going to control the people absolutely, he needs not only to control their mind but their heart, and he needs to have a religious system coupled with his government rule. And this evidently was Nebuchadnezzar's intention, to use this huge statue as a rallying point to form a religion in which he was head as well as head of state. And so everyone was to bow down and worship this golden image. Notice its great dedication. When he builds it, he goes out and sends word to the furthest parts of his kingdom in all the languages of all the peoples that all the rulers should assemble together. Verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefix. Uh, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the providences to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. 
And so this was not a small thing. This was the largest event of that nation. As all the leaders came and they were to bow down again and worship the image. By giving homage to this image, they were saying symbolically that they recognized King Nebuchadnezzar was the absolute ruler. And they were giving him their unquestioned allegiance. And not only them, but all those people under their authority were doing so. Now this was so important. Anyone who did not bow down and pay homage to this statue, hence giving total surrender to King Nebuchadnezzar of heart and will, would be thrown into the fiery furnace. Now imagine such a national event, uh, if we could even begin to imagine something in the United States of this magnitude of all the leaders of our local governments and state governments and federal governments all assembling in Washington, D.C. And uh, we had some tremendous ruler who was an absolute ruler and he was calling on all of them and they were willing to bow down and give uh, allegiance to him uh, and to this image that he had erected. Uh, you can see the great pressure that was going on in society. And if anyone did not bow down, they would be given the electric chair immediately and put to death without any appeal and without any waiting period, but immediate death. You can see the pressure. And this is the pressure that stood against these three Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, that's a golden image. Let's move to the ironclad charges brought against them. And there were certain Chaldeans who noticed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down and pray to this image. Now they were probably jealous because these three Jews had been elevated to positions of importance and leadership in the kingdom. You remember in chapter 2, when Daniel had uh, interpreted the dream, the king gave him great favor and he remembered his three friends in verse 49 of chapter 2. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was at the king's court. And so they had been given positions of great authority and leadership in the kingdom. And these Gentiles, no doubt, these Chaldeans were jealous about it. And so they were keeping an eye on him, even as some would later keep an eye on Daniel when the law was passed that you should pray to no one but the king. So they were probably looking to try to catch these guys. And when these guys didn't bow down, they said, uh-huh, here we have an ironclad case against them. Notice in verse 8, it says, For this reason, at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Now you see the phrase brought charges in the Hebrew, it means ate the pieces of. I mean, that is a strong terminology, a strong word picture for vicious charges. They were not just polite charges. These men were very hostile towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, with their words, tore them to pieces in front of the king. Notice in verse 12, as they're speaking to the king, and there are certain Jews, they say to the king, whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, have disregarded you they do not serve your guards, gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. They've disregarded you. You've placed them in authority and they could care less what you say. They have more or less turned up their nose at you, King Nebuchadnezzar. And so they are bringing their charges uh, against these three guys to the king knowing that it's going to cost these guys their life. Now look at the sterling faith of these three men. 
First of all, we see the king's rage in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then these men were brought before the king. Boy, he was infuriated. He couldn't believe somebody had the audacity to refuse and defy his order, his clear order. He brings them in. He gives them another chance. He realized that they were good leaders and he didn't just want to do away with them. So he says, I'm going to give you another chance. And he makes very clear for them what the punishment's going to be if they don't bow down. Look at verse 15. Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? He makes it very clear. Now look at their faith. They did not even need to think about their response. They didn't need to say, well, king, let us go think about this a minute. Let us go pray about this. Let us go consult with one another. This is a serious matter. Our lives are in the balance. No, they didn't even have to do that. They knew what they were going to do. They knew that to obey God was more important than life. These three men believed, first of all, that God was able to deliver them. That God was omnipotent. Look in verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. They had no question about God's power. They knew that God was the all-powerful God and that fire was nothing to him. And that God was well able to deliver them. So they believed in his omnipotence. They also believed that God would deliver them. Continuing in in verse 17. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. How did they know God would deliver them? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but evidently they had gotten a word from God that God was going to deliver them. Because as you and I know, and as the writer of Hebrews clearly tells us, God doesn't always choose to deliver us out of the problem. He sometimes, in fact many times, delivers us through the problem. But somehow they knew God was going to not allow them to be burned. And evidently they'd gotten a word from God about that. And they confessed that to the king. Now not only did they believe that God was able and that he would deliver them. But they wanted to make it clear to the king that they believed obedience was more important than life. Look at verse 18. But even if he does not. Now that's not a term of doubting, but they're saying basically, but even if he didn't deliver us, even if he had not told us he was going to deliver us, even if us not bowing down to this image, even if us obeying God were to cost us our life king, we still would obey God. They said, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They say, King, it is more important that we obey God than we live. Now here we see their faith being put to the extreme test of suffering and possible death. Now, they knew what was right to do. And they were going to do it. 
trusting God with the consequences. Now look at the king's greater rage in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, he got so mad that his face got all contorted. I mean, he was upset with them. He said, heat up the furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been. Tie them up and throw them into the fire. In fact, the fire was so hot it killed the mighty soldiers that hurled them in. Now, that's God's way of showing us that it was really a, a, a deadly fire. It wasn't a fluke. It was a deadly fire. It was a real fire. Now, look at their platinum deliverance in verse 24 and following. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He responded and said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, Certainly, O king. He answered, he said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of the blazing fire, and he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's high officials and the gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come about them. God had mightily delivered them. The king put them in there tied up and he looks in and he says, I put three, but now I see four. And the fourth one looks like the son of gods, the son of the gods, which was none other than Jesus, was it? This king, not knowing Jesus, couldn't say the son of the living God, but he recognized this fourth person was not just a person. He was a supernatural being. Now notice it was in adversity that they met Jesus. It's when we go through the hardships that we really see God. And we all want to see Jesus, but we don't want to go through adversity. We don't want to go into the fiery furnace. We just want to see Jesus. But it was not until these three men went into the fiery furnace that they saw Jesus. But it was in that adversity, in that hardship, that God made his presence especially real to them. And as you will, if you will look in your life, you will verify that it is in those special, especially difficult times that you really see God, don't you? And really sense his work and his presence in your life. And those are times that test your faith to show the quality of it. And their miraculous protection. God just moves in and supernaturally suspends the laws of nature. I mean, this fire does not harm them at all. It doesn't singe their hair. It doesn't even burn their clothes. They don't even smell like smoke. Isn't that amazing? The only thing that burned were the ropes that were around their hands that bound them. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized God's greatness. Look at verse 26. 
Nebuchadnezzar says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God. And that phrase, Most High God, means the uppermost God, the highest God. It was used when a lady would walk with two or three baskets on the top of her head, and that was used for the highest basket. In other words, this is Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the greatest God. He recognized none of the gods of the Babylonians could deliver somebody from the fiery furnace. But their God was able to do so. Now, he never did acknowledge Yahweh as his God. He didn't come to a saving faith at this point. But rather, he just acknowledged that their God was indeed the greatest God. And notice his brass confession. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servant, whose servants who put their trust in him, violated the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Now the reason I call this a brass confession is because it sounds good on the surface. But Nebuchadnezzar did not enjoin this confession with a saving faith. Nebuchadnezzar exalted God, but he did not come to a place of placing his personal trust in God, as you can tell from the rest of this book and chapter 4 in particular. But it sounds good on the surface, doesn't it? Therefore, verse 29, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Oh, those were great words. It's sad that they were not joined with the true confession of faith. And then verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar exalts Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego still further in his kingdom. Then the king calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Now, what are some practical lessons you and I can learn from Daniel 3? There are four lessons. The first one is the promise of persecution. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said, when the world hates you, don't be surprised. It hated me. And if they hate the master, what are they going to do to the servant? And if you and I will walk in obedience to God, if we will walk righteously, you can expect persecution. It will come just like it came for these three young men. Second, the promise of preservation. The promise of preservation. God will preserve us either out of the fire or through the fire. Either way, He'll be with us and He'll preserve us. He chose to bring these three guys out of the fire. He may bring you through the fire, but He'll be with you and He will preserve you. Third, there's a promise of promotion. The Bible says the road to exaltation is humiliation. First, there is suffering, then the glory. These three guys suffered, and then they were exalted. They were humbled, and then God lifted them up. And as you go through the persecution, and through the hardships and difficulties, and your faith is tested, and it is shown to be a genuine faith, then God in His time, will honor and exalt you. God says, I will honor those who honor me. And then fourth lesson is the one we have seen over and over in our study of Hebrews 11, and that is obedience is better than sacrifice. 
to obey God, no matter what the price or cost, is what God desires. To obey God is more important than life. To leave the consequences with Him, that's His business. Obedience is ours. Now look at the prophetic lesson. You remember from our study of Revelation that Babylon in Revelation represents the Antichrist and the one world government. Remember? The Babylon of the uh, Revelation. Now what's that one world government going to do? It's going to do the same thing King Nebuchadnezzar did. It's going to erect an image. The Antichrist is going to have an image. A false prophet is going to bring that image up. And what's he going to call on everyone to do? to take the mark of the beast and give homage to this image. In order to buy and sell, you're going to have to bow down, Revelation 13, and give uh, allegiance to this image of the beast. And for those who will not do so, they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And I think we have a picture here of the one world uh, government in Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and the Antichrist. And we have a picture of us Christians in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we will have to stand the test. And we will have to go through the fiery trials. But God will protect us. And He will either deliver us out of or through the persecution that the Antichrist will put upon us. So I think we have a prophetic lesson in this story as well. What about you tonight? Are you finding yourself in the fiery furnace? Has God engineered circumstances in your life to test your faith? And maybe right now you're finding yourself in the furnace of adversity. I want you to know that God desires to show that quality of your faith, the genuineness of your faith as you do what? As you first of all trust God in this situation. He doesn't say you have to understand it. He just says He wants you to trust Him in it. He doesn't say you have to understand why, just trust Him. And then secondly, are you doing what is right, what is righteous in the situation? You see, God desires us to have faith in Him and to obey His Word, which is to do what is right. You know, we can make so many of our decisions much simpler if we'll stop thinking about, well, what would I really like to do and what would I really like to happen and... and what might happen if I do so-and-so if we just cut through all of that and just say, well, what is the right thing for me to do? What is the will of God for me to do as revealed by the Word of God? And then act in obedience, trusting God. Sometimes it's not as easy to find out what is right, and we must, again, seek Him, trusting He will reveal to us as, we, as He's told us and promised in Jeremiah 33, 3. He says, call upon me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things. I'll tell you what I want you to do if you'll come and call upon me. And then by His grace, do what He calls us to do. And in so doing, He will preserve us through that adversity and our faith will even be purified more and the quality of our faith will come through. Let's pray. Father, I trust and pray that you are purifying our faith by your mighty hand, that we will stand the test of fire as we trust you in adversity, as we do what is right. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
187, just as I am. Stand as we sing, 187. If you need to step out, you do so on the first verse. 